Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Please turn to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from here, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. So if we haven't met, my name is Ron Ragsdale. It's my uh, pleasure to share a message with us today. Uh, And just to give you a little context, if you've heard me preach before, you probably know that I don't usually get that nervous or anxious. I enjoy the attention. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Stephanie's not laughing. Uh, uh, typically, I'm comfortable in front of a crowd, in front of a group, but in our message today, I, I just got to say there's parts of it that make me uncomfortable, and I'm, I'm humbled that, that I'm giving this message today. And uh, it's one of our habits, if we could show the Praxis diagram, it's one of our habits. We're in the weekly section, and so this habit is embody mercy in the margins. And just to give us some context or uh, just to mention, this is a phenomenal series that Stephanie and I, we've gotten so much out of. And the tools, I'm in shock at the quality of the tools and the way we can embody these things in our life. And so uh, if you haven't heard all the messages or if you haven't seen the tools on the web, I'd kind of say, hey, go take a look on the web. Uh, so, we're doing embody mercy in the margins. Uh, Katie, if you would, put the scripture back up, the second part. And this is where Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And it's got kind of an edge to it when Jesus says this. Like, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's co- quoting from Hosea 6. And uh, it's a big deal. Think about the context. He's been hanging out with, with tax collectors and sinners. And if you want to know in uh, the first century, who would you call marginalized? Well, obviously, if you just read into the context here, they're the marginalized. Tax collectors and sinners. And that's who Jesus is hanging out with. And then he quotes Hosea chapter 6. And the word for mercy there is a very particular Hebrew word, hesed. And normally when we see that word hesed, we usually think of covenant faithfulness. And we might be tempted to think that that only applies between us and God. And we may even narrow it further and say, well, that's God's relationship to us. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases That's has said of the Lord never ceases. But here Jesus is using this very important verse from Hosea. 
And he's talking about our covenant solidarity with those who are around us. Our covenant solidarity with those who others consider the marginalized. And where is Jesus going to be? He's going to be with them. Covenant solidarity. Covenant faithfulness. That in our relationship with Christ, our responsibilities, our calling, is not, they're not just vertical, but also horizontal. And my prayer for myself is that I would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and the courage to act. Eyes that see. Uh, in this case, just Jesus sees these others that we would typically marginalize as someone he's in covenant relationship with. Someone that he has a covenant responsibility towards. That's how he sees the others. Now there's a, a phrase uh, that I'm going to use. You may have heard this before. Uh, wounded people wound people. It's kind of a quip. I tried to figure out where it comes from and I, I found different kind of uh, citations for it, but I've thought of it, uh, you know, for a long time. The, the, the kid that's bullied becomes the bully him or herself. That kind of idea. Wounded people wound people. And I wonder if it's not also true to turn it a little bit around that uh, the mercified are merciful. The, those who have received mercy have at least a greater chance of then extending mercy to other people. And, and I, well, if, for instance, uh, in a parking lot after a, a sporting event, the parking lot is packed, and you're trying to pick the right lane to get out, you know, try to get out of the parking lot, and do you just cut off everyone that you're trying, you know, if I can get ahead of that guy, or if someone lets you in, are we not more likely to kind of let someone else in too? At least I am. So the mercified, typically, we extend mercy to others. Even in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Like there's this connection to the mercy we received and the mercy we extend to others. But I have to ask the question, do, do we believe in God's mercy? Now when we say that, Typically, for us as uh, Christians, evangelicals, we go, of course I believe in God's mercy because he's forgiven my sins in Jesus. Okay, I'll take that as a given. And now I'll ask, do we believe that God is merciful? Or, in general, taken as a whole, do we believe that people get what they deserve? That God is a God that gives people what they deserve. And, and there's some good Bible verses for that too. A, a, a little sleep, a little slumber, a, a little, a little put, putting of the hands, head to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a thief. That's from Proverbs. And there's lots of other verses that are kind of like reap what you sow verses. And so it's often the case, I believe, that we actually aren't that in touch with mercy, with God's mercy towards us in an ongoing way. And because I don't think we're in touch with God's mercy, I think that we are often hampered in how we extend mercies to others. That proverb, a little sleep, a little slumber, folding in the hands to rest, 
poverty will come upon you like a thief. We kind of turn that around where if you're poor, ergo, you must be lazy. Do you see how we do that with people? If you're poor, it's probably your fault. And when we do that, we are not likely to extend mercy, certainly not to extend even understanding. We just put them in a category and on we go. I got three main things to say. So, and I'm going to tell you all three right now, and then we're going to unpack them together. So, embody mercy in the margins. Here's the first thing. Learn what othering means. Learn what othering means. Number two, start where we are. And number three, open a can of spinach like Popeye. So, uh, learn about othering. Now, I'm just kind of curious if I even use that phrase, like uh, I did this with someone the other day. Hey, t- what do you think of when I say the word othering? And they like, why would you turn an adjective into a verb? What are you talking about? How many of us have heard even this term, othering, as a verb? I, I want to see it, hands of some kind. Okay, actually not that many of us when we look around. So here's what othering means. It's where we put people into categories And in doing so, we're actually defining who's in and who's out. Uh, Normal versus abnormal, or normative versus defective. Uh, Favored, not favored, blessed, cursed, even to the extent of human and not human. This is what othering means. And typically we do that on the basis of uh, race, religion, uh, political affiliation, nationality, uh, sex, Gender, age, othering is happening, happening all around us all the time. And this is, this is the parts where I get nervous about this message I'm trying to preach, is that it's not like there's an easy solution to this. It, it's actually very nuanced. Um, and my, my recommendation is that we just begin to learn what it means. What is othering? So that then we can recognize when it's happening around us, when it's happening to us, or when we're doing it on or against other people. The ways that we make some other group or category into an other. Because once we make them into an other, we probably don't need to show mercy to them. Why? Because they're out, not in. Because they're defective, not normative. Because they're abnormal, not normal. Because they're maybe not even human. There were some examples of othering that I wanted to use from my own experience, from my own kind of growing up in uh, our culture here. (laughs) Here I mean Texas. Uh, A couple of them I shared with Mark last week, like, hey, I'm wanting to say this about othering, and I gave him the example, and he goes, you cannot say that in church. (laughs) And this is where I'm nervous, because there's things where Uh, I think we do need to talk about what othering looks like. And if we look back in any any of our lives, either because it was so painful for us to be the recipient or the victim of othering from others, uh, or just to see the culture that we grew up in. I'll give one example that seems kind of tame, but the more you think about it, it's not. Johnny Quest 
the cartoon. You know, when I was a kid, all the Johnny Quest reruns, like he was our, my favorite because he's the blonde-haired boy that has all these adventures. And I was a blonde-haired boy that wished I could have lots of adventures. And uh, do you remember his father's name? Bruce. Bruce Quest. Do you, uh, oh, man, not Bruce. Benton. Dr. Benton Quest. Uh, do you remember his dog? Haji. No, hot, now I'm, see this, I'm so nervous, I'm messing up who they are. His Indian friend was Haji, the dog was Bandit, and the adventurer who kind of, you know, got in, you know, got him out of all the scrapes was Bruce T. Bannon. Bruce T. Thank you. Jack and I understand each other. This is about, I don't know, two, three years ago, I'm watching TV, flipping channels, go by, you know, Cartoon Network, there's... There's Johnny Quest. I'm just watching it for a few minutes. And within minutes, I'm going, oh, dear God. How did I not see this, what's going on here? Uh, you know, there's one fight scene. I am going to say this. Uh, Bruce T. Bannon, who's trying to get him out of the scrape in the jungles of South America, uh, yells at the, the natives as they're depicted in Johnny Quest and calls them yelling and shooting guns, ignorant savages and heathen monkeys. What I'm trying to say is, uh, certainly everyone my age, as we were growing up, we received hundreds of messages about who's in and who's out, you know, about normal and abnormal about those that are valuable and those who really have no value. And othering is, it's when you begin to see the ways that we do that or the ways that it's done to us. You could say that othering is also the starting point for prejudice and for bias. Othering is the garden from which prejudice and bias grows. Now, again, I just have to say, this is not easy, nor am I a standard of non-othering, as even my own family members could attest. It takes some nuance. Uh, standards, they do change over time. I hope we can say, thank God they change over time. I'm, I'm glad we don't live in the same world of the 1960s that I grew up in. I'm glad for that now. So standards do change, and as standards are changing, or as awareness is growing, uh, you know, we, we might find ourselves kind of caught or trapped, like, what do you mean I can't say Orientals anymore? Is that one getting close to home, too? I mean, these are the things Mark is going, oh, yeah. I have to say Asian? I mean, where does it end? The PC police, you know, cancel culture. They, you know, it's gone way too far. And I just want to say to myself, you know, yeah, learn what othering means and begin to recognize all the different ways that othering happens. And maybe we'll have a little sensitivity, sym sympathy to uh, let ourselves be corrected once we consider what it is we're actually doing we're a part of or what our family of origin is doing where we might go 
I'd like to work on that differently. We want to learn about othering. We want to recognize it because when we see others as an other, we don't have to show them mercy. And we often don't. I already gave you one Hebrew word, hesed. Here's another Hebrew word for mercy. Rachamim. Rachamim. And it's in that same verse I mentioned from Lamentations a minute ago. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's hesed, of the Lord never ceases. Uh, uh, Rachamim. His mercy never comes to an end. And that word for mercy is really unusual because literally it means womb. And when you show mercy to another, it's like saying, I womb you. And this is God's relationship to us. You know, covenant solidarity has said mercy and this type of mercy where it's like, hey, we are so intimately connected, but my heart so goes out to you, we are the same. We're, we're of the same family. I womb you. Like, there, there's, there can't be a more intimate embrace than to say, I womb you. And this is how God loves us and gives us that mercy. To womb someone is the opposite of othering. In othering, we're saying, I have no part in you. I reject you. I reject what you stand for. You're in an irredeemable category to me. In fact, I probably don't even recognize you're in the room. You mean so little to me. That's what othering is. But God's mercy is, I womb you. So, number one, learn about othering. Number two, start from where we are. And, and I'll just briefly, uh, I'm going to say the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm, I'm kind of guessing most of us have heard or know what that parable is about the Good Samaritan. And it starts with a lawyer asking Jesus a question, uh, you know, uh, what must I do to enter eternal life? Jesus says, what's the, how do you read the scriptures? And the guy says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. And then in order to justify himself or to give himself some ways out, the lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and you know the story. You know, like There's this guy who has been uh, beaten, assaulted, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. By the way, we read, we, we read over that so quickly in Scripture and I just wonder if we can take a moment and actually know what that feels like, to think about what that means to be assaulted, to be robbed. And I know some of us in this room do know that. I don't. And so I tend to look past it pretty fast. But that's what goes on in the story. And then uh, the priest comes by, sees the beaten up guy on the side of the road. He goes to the other side of the road and walks by. And then a Levite, another religious kind of person, leader, he sees what's going on. He crosses to the other side of the road, so he has to avoid him. It'd almost be like if they had a cell phone in their hand, and it's like, uh, I'm going to play on my phone so I don't have to make eye contact with you, and we've all done it. 
And then the Good Samaritan. And in the world of of the first century, certainly in a Jewish context, the Samaritans can't be the heroes of any story. Talk about othering. And then throughout the whole Gospel of Luke, Jesus is turning this othering on its head. And this is another one of those stories with the Good Samaritan where he turns the othering that would be endemic to his time and culture and he turns it on its head and the Good Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. He's the one that stops, takes care of the guy, uses his own resources, pays for him to be cared for, pays for him to have lodging. When I come back if there, if, to the innkeeper, if there's any other bill that you, that you have to pay, let, I will pay it when I come back. Start from where we are. He was just walking down the road, and his eyes were open to see a need. Start from where we are. A theologian that I read years ago named Daryl Guter, New Testament theologian, he was writing about this passage. He says, who is our neighbor? Anyone we have to go out of our way to avoid. Those are our neighbors. So think about it. In any, in any context, any day of our life, like who is our neighbor? And it's not just the people that live on the street where we live. Neighbor is anyone that we come into contact with on a regular basis, normal basis. It's just start with where we are. Uh, family. Even marriage. There's a neighbor there. Wouldn't it be nice if Ron showed a little more mercy or understanding there? Or kids, adult kids, young kids, mercy. Let's show mercy there. But it's also every day, those who go to work, work. You're embedded in all these relationships everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if we were known as merciful? Wouldn't that be great? And I love the connection here to one of the other praxis uh, habits about speaking blessing. So remember that, speaking blessing? Even just learning how to have a great conversation with someone. Uh, learning how to listen more than we speak. Those are ways of extending grace to others, of extending mercy to others, just that we even listen to who they are and what they have to say. Or here, or anywhere we go, there's always uh, places where if only we had eyes to see and a heart that feels, we would be drawn to extend mercy to other people. How many times have you gone to an event of some kind, whether it's through work or organizations or school or PTA, and you feel like you're on the outside? We've all felt it. And what does it feel like when someone notices you? And somehow knows that you feel like you're on the outside. And they come and speak with you. Hey, my name's Ron. What's your name? Now that is extending mercy to others. Start from where we are. Eyes that see. Ears that hear. The courage to act. Again, I want to give some nuance to this. It's not always easy. It's not always clear. Where mercy lies. And I had a a friend, a business owner, who uh, their accountant had been embezzling. And as the uh, owner looked into it, he realized that she had embezzled in two other prior businesses before the person came and worked for my friend. 
But he was wondering, should I forgive this person? Should I forgive them? Is that what God wants me to do, to forgive them? Is that mercy? And actually, my counsel to him was, um, no. The kindest thing you can do for this person is to go ahead and press charges. That's what I said. I don't even know if I was right or wrong. I'm just saying this is the nuance that mercy takes. Sometimes the hardest thing is also the most merciful thing that we can do or give to another person. Number three, let's open a can of spinach. You know, okay, I'm always showing my age and time of life. Like, who even knows what that means, to open a can of spinach? Not to open a can, David, open a can of spinach. Yeah, it comes from Popeye. And who are the characters in Popeye? Popeye, olive oil, and who's the bad guy always? Bluto, in some later iterations called Brutus. So they did change his name at one point. Then he went back to Bluto. You know, and in and, and every single Popeye cart, I don't know of one cartoon where this didn't happen, where some situation's going on, you know, and Popeye or olive oil are kind of getting beat up or in trouble, and then all of a sudden Popeye takes out his can and says, that's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. Opens the spinach, you know, guzzles it down, and then he's, you know, transformed, you know, and he wins the day. So here, as we're talking about mercy, you know, eyes that see, a heart that feels, courage to act, it, it, it's kind of an admonition or a suggestion, like, what's your Popeye moment? Because I think for many of us, if we would think about it, like, there's, there's going to be one or a few things that we want to do more about, like... Uh, injustice of some kind and oftentimes it comes from maybe our own woundedness this not like wounded people wound people but because of our life experience we now have an extra sensitivity towards this topic and I'm going to say get engaged oftentimes it starts with just learning first like I want to learn more about this so I don't just rush in like you know the the great white savior, I'm going to rush in and solve it all. Like maybe we should just listen for a while. We have some friends that uh, had, we had recommended. This is why I'm nervous because I don't want what I'm about to say to be viewed as political, but there are political ramifications to what I'm about to say. But I'm not trying to advocate for political positions. We recommended to our friends because we had found it valuable to listen to the 1619 podcast. If you listen to the podcast, one of the ways it starts out is, if you join the Facebook group, is uh, don't say anything for three months. Just listen to the conversation. And so the friends we recommended this to, who are beautiful, loving, wonderful people, and yet their response when they came to that point, like, well, I'm not going to do that. If, I have to listen for three months? No, I'm not going to do it. And so when I say find your Popeye moment, maybe the first step is to be willing to learn more. Before we start taking action, let's learn more about it and become educated, become skillful, 
and to see what other people are doing in this field of life and how we might can help them. I wish Andrew was here, Andrew Fike. He's the head of our compassion team group here at church, and there's all kinds of opportunities that are right here with us every day. We don't have to go to some foreign country, not that there's anything wrong with that, but all around us. And I would like, I'm going to make one more reference, not to my childhood so much, but to the three amigos. Does anyone remember the three amigos motto that they said repeatedly through the movie? You know, wherever there is injustice, you will find us. You know, wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. You know, wherever there is, wherever liberty is threatened, you will find the three amigos. And I am saying, there's probably something for each of us. For family members, for parents, I'd say, you know, we want to model something for our children. Let's model mercy. Because if we have experiences of mercy when we're young through our families, then it becomes our expectation, we hope, that as we're older and become families of our own, that we also continue to extend that mercy. And I have beautiful memories of my own family, in spite of all these other parts of the culture in which I was raised, where we helped others. And I remember as a little kid going to uh, some housing areas in Fort Worth where I grew up and, and bringing food and gifts, not just as a one-off thing, but as a regular thing, like on a schedule. And we, we met those families and knew who we were giving food to. I'm not saying all this is right or wrong. I'm just saying that's a memory out of all the things that's happened in my life. Like, it's still there. And it strikes me as a beautiful thing. So even if we're raising kids, even if we're busy with all kinds of responsibilities, there's always room for margin, for mercy in the margin, always room. My prayer for us, my prayer for myself, is that we would have eyes to see, a heart that feels, and the courage to act.